I find it depressing how many people who don't know what they're doing are giving advice to people on the internet. Yeah, there's a lot of that these days. Life advice, archery advice. The archery advice is what I noticed the most. Yeah. It's terrible. You get people who can't break 300 at 70 meters telling people how to shoot. Yeah, how to, how to execute a shot. Yeah, from their vast experience. Maybe they're really just super hella good at shot execution. They just can't aim to save their life. I'm George Tekmachev here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. Back for Easton Podcast 47. This is the second podcast in a row where I've gone without headphones. Yeah, well. It's liberating. It actually worked okay last time. I didn't see any problems, and so I'm thinking you can get away with it. We have a, a slew of questions from our listeners uh, because we gave them some advance notice. So we'll get to those in just a few moments. But um, let's recap a couple of things. You went to Arizona Cup. That's right. Took third place. Yep. And were sick as a dog. Yeah, I puked everywhere on my way to the podium. It was terrible. I'm, I'm not I'm not kidding. Was, I mean, it was bad. Yeah, it was kind of like funny in a way, you know. Not really. But uh, it was. I mean, you couldn't even make it up to the podium. You were so sick. No, I, so I walked you, out to the podium, right? Or I was trying to. <clears throat> so um, I saw Paul Tedford and Tate Morgan. They were kind of over there waiting. So I decided I'd go wait with them. And I was walking through a crowd on my way to uh, to meet up with them. This is seconds, literally, before we go on the podium. And, you know, I hadn't been feeling well all day. And at that very moment, I thought I need to get out of this crowd really quick and find a trash can. And, and they were by a trash can. So I got over to him and Paul goes, dude, you don't look very good. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm not feeling. And then I had to just turn into the trash can. And I just cut loose a big dry heave. It was a big dry heave. I'm sure people want to hear all these details. And uh, well, there I was said, a concerned group of people. I mean, all kidding. Aside. Yeah. So I said, well, you know, you can talk yourself into puking sometimes. You think like, oh, I'm sick. I'm going to puke. And then you think about it so much. Oh, that, yeah, you can talk yourself out of it, too. Yeah. You, you, but you think about it so much that eventually it, it happens. Your mouth starts watering and you just lose it. So, um, you know, I thought maybe maybe that's what happened. So I, I was like, I, I think I'm OK. I think I'm OK. And then the next second. Um, they announced my name to go to the podium. I turn around and I start, I take maybe two steps and, uh, Nina from AAE is there. She's AAE's the title sponsor. Oh, I know, I know Nina. So they're doing the awards, right? So she's getting ready to hand me a medal or whatever. And, and I'm like, I, I hold a finger up like, no, hold on just one second. And I head straight for a trash can. That's a little bit less uh compared to the trash can i was at you know everyone was still going to see me but they weren't going to have a uh full frontal view of the spew and because <laughs> everybody wants to know yeah. what steve had for lunch yeah so i uh i commenced with the puking for the next you know four minutes or so oh man never I'm made so the sorry. podium i'm but. so sorry well, you did make the podium. You just I didn't, didn't make it on to up the actual podium. But. So we, we don't actually have a photo of you on the podium. What we have is a composite photo of the two guys, first, second place, and then Steve at the trash can. Yeah, Paige Pierce took that, stitched it together. Yeah, we chose not to put that on the uh, on the Facebook. Thing. Yeah, probably. Well, it's on mine. On your personal yeah, one? Yeah, it's on my Facebook. Oh, well. I That's just... So you, you felt that coming on while you were shooting, though. Yeah, I wasn't feeling that great. Like, uh, thankfully... I didn't have any loss of strength that I noticed, you know, it was, it was that night when I started to really 
feel weak. So something got me, and it's uh, it's something you ate, presumably. I, I think it's actually more virus. I don't think it was something I ate because. So you picked something up maybe on your trip, on your previous trip to Mexico. Um, no, it doesn't feel. I mean, this you're is, still sick, by the way. Yeah, I, um, it doesn't feel like what I've had in the past when I got something in Mexico. Generally, that hits me pretty quick after the trip. So I would have thought I would have had it within a day or two of getting home. Um, and and with Mexico, it's a lot different than what I'm feeling now. So, yeah, so it, maybe it you was, picked up some kind of bug. Yeah, I think I just got some kind of viral infection. And oh, well. All right. So challenging as usual, um, Arizona Cup, windy a lot of the time. Yeah, it was uh, – we were expecting – like doomsday wind 40 mile an hour gusts is what was forecast yeah and did you get those it never got that bad That's thankfully good. so i mean i i had no idea what to expect but we shot in the morning and you know we had i was fourth with a 707 so it wasn't that bad of conditions you no, that's know? pretty good um it's pretty good score yeah so it was probably actually one of the best arizona cups i've ever seen in terms of weather the next day in eliminations we had a really windy first match but even then like fourth end fifth end it started to calm down a little bit and then after the rest of the day it was pretty shootable so you see a lot of scores you know one in the 130s from that first match and uh almost knocked out some top shooters um you know Braden Braden went to a shoot off that match with like a 138 or something like that and uh he he had to come from behind he had to shoot a 30 in his last end to tie it so he ended up going all the way to the bronze match and so saved his bacon a little bit. So it was you versus Braden Galantine for the bronze and you prevailed. Yeah. In the case of first place, it was um It was uh Paul Tedford and Paul Tate Tedford Morgan. Yep. And Tate Morgan. Tate Both Morgan. of whom have been coming up. I mean they've been yeah. they've been performing well. They shot well in Vegas. Yeah. Paul's a strong shooter, Tate's really talented and he's starting to figure out how to uh take it to the stage. You yeah, know. so it's you know clear that the uh, the American machine continues on. Yeah, it's from, a, this, from the compound standpoint. We're possibly, I would say, we're deeper than ever. Really. What was the women's podium looking like for compound? Um. Oh man. So Dahlia Crook won. Uh huh. And she's been shooting pretty good lately. She had a a final at, at versus. She was fourth there, and then she ended up winning Arizona Cup over a girl. I think her name's Alexis Reese. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Sarah Sonicson was up there. Uh, not at Arizona Cup. Oh, no. Okay. Nope. No, no, I was thinking about Mexico just now, wasn't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah, you were thinking Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So then uh, Danielle Reynolds was third. Okay. So pretty much an Eastern sweep then on every uh, every podium, every podium, every so. senior level podium. Yeah. Sorry, I can't speak for every the premier podium. <laughs> How's that? Premier category. I, yes. Yeah. We we. Uh, we care about the kids for sure, but we don't necessarily uh, advertise what the kids are shooting. No, and I can't get to every match to see what everyone is using. So, yeah. so anyway, so a good Arizona Cup. You've got um, South Dakota Classic coming up next, right? Yep. We're actually going to talk to Bruce about that next week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Got Bruce booked to uh, come on the show. Very nice. So we'll get more details on that one. What's your prep plan for that one? Um, show up. Show just up. show up. <laughs> okay, so the usual practice routine. Nine. Actually, you know what I'm going to probably do there is shoot my Redding bow, my field bow. That'll be a good opportunity to get yeah. it sorted out. So I usually shoot a little different stabilization. Um, 
sidebar a little further in, which is hard for me to adjust to, but it's kind of necessary when you're shooting up and down hills. You have body clearance problems when you bring it in? Uh, well, I go to a shorter bar too. Okay. I go from 15 to 12. So that helps. Yep. So, yeah. So it's a good, good chance for me to uh, get that one up and running, which I'll also use for USA Field Nationals coming up and then – uh, I plan on going to the Pro Series in Luxembourg in July, so oh, I'll, I'll use the same bow for all three. Luxembourg, not Belgium. They moved the venue? Um, well, they they still have Belgium. Um, oh, is this a different yeah, event? It's different, yeah. They have four events. Oh, the I Pro didn't Series. know that. I thought yep. there was only one. Yep, four events, so I'm going to the Luxembourg version. I was thinking of going to Berlin for the World Cup, but I don't know if I will or not. I might. I might just do. I've never been to Berlin. I I think I drove through Berlin once. Yeah, a lot of history there. I think I'd like to check it out. Well, we got some terrific questions, um, quite a few of them, on our Facebook after last week we uh, put the call out for them. I think um, we can make the rest of the show from just from the questions we got. Yeah, for real. Because we got some great ones here. Um, Fraser Young, we'll start out with that one. What does the C1 through 5 grade with regard to the Pro Tour shaft mean? Is there any benefit in getting a dozen at C1 over C5 or vice versa? For example, uh, 420 spine shooting 50-meter rounds. And um, Steve actually addressed this on Facebook for him uh, because the C code is not a grade. It's a weight sort code. Um, When you make, say, 1,000 arrows... Some arrows are going to be slightly heavier. Some arrows are going to be slightly lighter. And so a C3 weight code is the center of the bell curve of weight distribution. And then slightly lighter ones are 1 and 2, and slightly heavier ones are 4 and 5. And in fact, these days, we really only have a couple weight codes coming out of every, every production run. Yeah, it's, um, it's rare to see more than when – I'm, when I'm ordering shafts, sometimes someone will – requests like a c2 and they may have shot this particular spine years ago yeah and i i won't have c2s in this spine maybe ever again correct because the tolerance has gotten tighter that's right so So our our production process yeah yeah our production process has actually been improved our materials have been tweaked um continually over the years actually to to try to reduce the number of weight codes but um there is an article on the eastern archery uh, website, easternarchery.com. Uh, you can just do a quick search for a weight code um, and you'll find that article. And it explains everything in excruciating detail. But uh, thank you for the question, Frazier. Uh, Daniel Coe <clears throat> had the same, uh, had a comment about that same question. Um, he's got some ACEs in C4 and C5 and he's wondering if it's worth selling the C4s and buying new ones to make the, uh, the arrows match. He's finding uh, about a three grain difference between his heaviest and lightest shafts. So that's a spread of one and a half grains. And for most purposes, well, I'll put it this way. I don't know any shooters who can yeah, wouldn't matter to me. find the difference at 70 meters, let's say, uh, with, with one and a half grain spread. So um, I'm not too worried about that kind of thing. I think you can have a C4 and a C5 together. And, you know, by the time you build the arrow, and again, that's addressed in that article that, uh, that Steve references. Yeah, I mean, it... it Gluing in points, you can have a three grain variance in glue easily. So yeah, there's some you know tolerance stack here and there, depending on whether you glue your veins on too. Yeah, glue your um, veins or tape. And one of our regulars, uh, Rahafzan Yawan, is uh, saying that he wishes you well after what happened in Arizona Cup. Steve, appreciate it. His question is um, for bows with adjustable let offs. 
How does the amount of let off impact Aerotune? So let's say we have a bow that can have uh, 65 or 75% let off with the same cam mm -hmm. system. One of them is going to pound the arrow just a little harder on release, isn't it? Yeah, but you know what I've noticed is it's generally not a doesn't create a tuning difference. So it wouldn't say. be something At least you on need the to go to a different shot. size necessarily. Right. Yeah, like, you know, say uh I mean, if literally all you're adjusting is let off cam and everything else stays the same on on the bows i've done this with which would they're all hoyts uh, i haven't seen the need to change a tune now maybe there's some other bows you know like the uh the matthews chill series comes to mind very hard transition from let off to power stroke those those bows are some knock spreaders that's for sure they're they're very hard on knocks and i don't know how those would be if you took them from their 85 percent option to their 65 I don't know if it'd cause a problem or not. I I wouldn't expect it to require a different arrow spine. You know, I don't think it's that drastic, but you could see some differences, I suppose. All right. And um, his second question is he wants to use 1914 X7s with 1913 inserts, um, but there's no RPS points made to fit that insert. Um, so wants to know if we're planning to produce RPS points in sizes similar to 832 multi-points. Uh, he likes the multi-points a lot. Uh, no, we don't have a plan to add new ones, but I would look at ACC screw-in points. There should be something that'll fit. Um, yeah, potentially for, uh, for say, the uh, 300 or 340 spot, yeah. the 370 yep. or... Or 360. Yep. I think you should be able to get one of those to work for you. I don't know. I didn't check, but I'm pretty sure one of those will work. They'd be close, yeah. Yeah. Good question from our friend Sarah Toth, um, who is uh, mentioning that she did a small local tournament last weekend, her first time competing in a long time, in almost 20 years. She had two people chew her out over things they saw as etiquette problems that, they, that she thought were simply individual preference. So... Um, I'm going to address this because I think this could be valuable information for a lot of folks. First, Sarah says, one person was mad at her for pulling her arrows first after she switched top and bottom targets. She thought they'd just keep pulling in the same order since kept calling scores in the same order. Frankly, I think top should pull first. Yep. Whoever's on top should pull first and bottom should pull second. And that's strictly a matter of not sticking somebody with your arrow. That's all yeah. that is. Yeah, agreed. Um, but no, nobody should get bent out of shape about it. This is something people should just be able yeah, to discuss. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Second thing, um, a person was miffed that she'd stepped away from the line while someone else was at full draw. Uh, she was always taught to focus on her own game. I don't know how this person could even look over their shoulder and see me. So obviously she was behind him uh, when they were at full draw. Are those things you would call widely accepted etiquette issues? I don't want to be rude, but I'm also not a person who wants to waste worry lines on stupid stuff either. Well, for the second one, if you're standing in front of somebody, um, I think it's more or less polite, especially in Vegas quarters, that is where you're really close to each other, to maybe wait till they've executed their shot before you step off the line. But the rules are, actually, that as soon as you've completed shooting, you are to step off the line, regardless of what's going on around you. I think you've got to have a balanced approach. You can't tell what's going on um, necessarily, behind you if you're focused on your shot as long as you don't bump somebody i don't see an issue with stepping off the line from behind somebody who's not in your sight line hmm. yeah i i uh 
I treat it differently, I suppose. I At an NFAA-type event, I always wait until the person's done shooting, and then I walk away. Some but, people some people prefer that, and some people don't. Yeah, and, you know, if they're always consistently the last person on the line, I'll even ask them, do you want me to st- – do you want me to stay till you finish your arrow? Sometimes yeah. they like having a person. I don't know. That's that's not part of what she's asking. But um, for world archery rules, the rule does say when you're done shooting, get off the line. So I do. So the question is, is there a universal etiquette on this? And the answer is probably no. The answer is probably work it out with yeah. whoever you're shooting with. I would say if they're – I mean, you're talking a matter of a few seconds. If they're at full draw, I'd probably just wait. You know, and certainly if you're shooting outdoor with a lot of scopes and stuff on the line, it's best to to wait because it's easy to tangle a bow in one of those. And I think it's real important not to physically touch or interfere with another shooter. So if that means that you wait a bit just to be safe, just to be on the safe side, I think it's worth it. Yeah. Ken Jr. is asking, hey, guys, been listening to the podcast for several months now. Um, He seems to like the podcast. Thank you. I also have a question that I'm hoping you can help point me in the right direction. He's got a field set up, um, and he's got some details on that field setup. Energy 35, 27-inch draw at 58 pounds. And he gets into his rest, which has a 008 blade. It's a Spot Hog Premier. And he's having trouble shooting further than 70 yards unless he's using a very light arrow. A 294-grain arrow is what he's referencing. He's got his sight as close to the riser as he can get it, but if he uses anything much heavier than those particular arrows, he's got a clearance issue between his veins and his scope housing. He's raised his peep as high as he can get it without anchoring far below his jawline at longer yardages. His question is what recommendation you have to let him reach 90 meters uh, with that type of arrow and maybe a heavier arrow to allow for less wind drift. Do I need more poundage? Well, you, you know, depending on what kind of competition you're doing you can't have much more poundage than 58 you know if it's world archery or if it's um you know uh, if it's nfaa i guess you can get away with whatever you want yeah my my initial thought on this is well first i I would like to know the peep height measurement as you would take from uh, the peep to the arrow shaft at full draw so middle of peep to middle of arrow is a it's a measurement you use for archer's advantage. So if you're making a sight tape, you should have that. Um, and then, I mean, I have 70, 70 yards seems awful short. So what, what really came to mind when I first read this is I'm wondering if he's tied extremely knock high on his knocking point, um, which would be, you know, ramping the arrow downward and, and uh, basically just sloping everything downhill and that that could rob you of some serious yardage so yeah i don't know i'll also point out also point out that too light of an arrow can actually be less efficient and can actually cost you some distance depending on how much vein area you've got on the thing how much point weight you've got a number of Mm -hmm. other factors so it's not just about a lightweight arrow because um imagine throwing a, a golf ball as hard as you can and throwing a ping pong ball as hard as you can you can huck a golf ball 100 yards Right. But a ping pong ball will stop it within 15 or 20 feet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's a, a little bit of a specious comparison, yeah. but it does give you some idea. So maybe a slightly heavier arrow might actually be to your advantage. Yeah, my, my thoughts, like I said, either he's got a really low rest 
or a very high knock point. I'm not Something familiar is, with the bow in question here. Yeah, it's a it's a binary cambo. Well, they can't use the word binary. It's a dual track two cambo or something like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> so there's not much you can do there as far as, say, adjusting the knocking point down or something like that. Well, I mean, the knock point on that bow should be level. Right. On on a bow of that cam system, it should be right at zero. Right. Because yeah, they, you, they I mean, you, you can't tweak it to, yeah. Um, so... I would that that's where I would look first is leveling out the uh knock point and arrow rest and go from there. Yeah, because you mentioned um you mentioned Ken that you have a shoulder injury. I would not increase poundage if you uh don't absolutely have to. So uh that's the best we've got for that right now. Steve Yee, our friend down in Arizona. With today's manufacturing techniques available today, why are arrows still hollow inside? Couldn't modern extrusion technology allow for a solid body arrow made of lightweight materials that can still be straight and have the proper deflection for spine? And wouldn't the resulting arrow be narrower in the process? This is what happens when people watch too much Star Trek. <laughs> Steve, he's got it. He's an engineer as well. Yeah, I know. I'm just kidding, Steve. Um, you know, Steve, I, I probably don't have to explain to you that the moment of inertia of the arrow shaft is a function of uh, the geometry of the arrow, some other factors, and you want to have the stiffest material on the outside. Um, and it's as you move in toward the center of the arrow shaft, the effective stiffness becomes less. So long story short, you're just adding weight. So when you said, Steve, I probably don't have to explain this to you, you were explaining it to Steve Yee. Because yeah. that I... I meant Steve I had no idea. I meant so. Steve Yee. Yeah. The other Steve. That makes sense. The small cat. Stiffest Steve material <laughs> furthest away. There you go. All right. Daniel Coe, um, shooting 70 meters with ACE 520s with 90 grains using inserts and screw-in points. 42 pounds. He wants to know what effect will he see if he changes the points to 100 grains. Will they help in windy conditions? Would the extra weight mean my sight marks would need dropping down? 10 grains is not going to be that much of a change. Uh, maybe an eighth of an inch on your sight. Um, you won't see much improvement in the wind. Uh, it won't really change the tune of your bow, of your uh, of your arrow. Um, you're not going to gain much, but you're not going to lose a whole lot either. Worth Any, trying, I suppose. Sure. And one piece points are simpler too. Alan Ricks, when I tuned my bow and got everything down the center, it was shooting bullet holes through paper. I did a walk back tune and set the sight. Everything is straight except my sight is to the left of the arrow more than I would have thought normal. Is this because of torque on the bow or incorrect spine or even riser flex? Well, he doesn't tell us what kind of bow he's shooting, and he doesn't tell us, um, you know, whether he's shooting, I'm going to assume he's shooting a compound since he's talking about bullet holes. Or yeah. But, um, you know, it could be that, that, I mean, there's a plethora of things. I mean, it could be a little bit of cam lean. It could be. Uh, well, it's just a, that's I mean, normal, I yeah. would say, with most any bow. I mean, you're. Your, uh, it's cable torque that causes that. So it creates such a side load on the bow that as the bow is drawn and the load shifts from, you know, one to the other, from brace to full draw, that, that load shift creates. Because you've got 400 pound change in that, in that stress state on those cables when you pull. Something like that. Yeah. It's uh, significant. And yeah, your, your riser is twisting. So that's happening. Um, you know, I, I put it on a shooting machine and take it back to full draw and look down at now. And I bet it's pretty darn, darn straight. Now it, it'll be worse on some bows versus others and non shoot through bows. It's worse on 
Um, bows without a cable containment system that either flexes or moves inward, it'll be worse on. Because so, it puts more stress on those risers. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can take any bow, and all you have to do is put a – you could take a bow with a, with a carbon cable rod that goes straight back, shave it in half to where it'll allow it to flex in, and you'll be moving your sight to the right about 20 clicks on a right-handed bow. So that'll level th- or even things out really fast for you. But, yeah, some bows it's worse than others. Um, I wouldn't worry about it at all. Who Sujit says, hi, is there a lifespan for X10 arrows before they change? Two years, five years, ten years. I recently found a set of X10s uncut, about seven years old. Will it still be the same? Um, these are not tomatoes. They don't, uh, they don't change over time. <laughs> if you shoot them into stramet and into harsh materials, yeah, you might change the weight of the arrow as you wear off the front. But uh, you're talking about just a set that's been sitting around, and the answer is um, not within our lifetimes. Will you see any change on those? Is he asking if we've changed the models, like the the uh, build. Yeah, I think he's just wondering if an old if set of X7s will shoot like a new set. And the answer is, yeah, they'll, they'll shoot just yeah, the same. all day long. Daniel Gregory is asking an interesting question, and he, uh, he, wants, he says when the Easton Center opened, he vaguely remembers one of the people from the uh, Sports Development Foundation saying that if you won a world medal, you got a lifetime membership there. Did I hear that correctly? And if so, does a medal at the World University Archery Championships count? I have I don't know no idea. Answer that question. <laughs> so the answer to that question is going to be in the hands of one Trevor Thornton at the Eastern Archery Center, and I would suggest giving him a call directly because I haven't got a clue. I I had heard if you were a world champion, right? But a world university champion is not a world no archery. There's one champion. world championship. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry about that, Daniel. But uh, like I said, maybe maybe Trevor has a different take on this. Trevor may have a different take. Probably and not. that might actually not even none, – none of it might be true. I don't know. Well, there's, there's – um, We can't answer the question. There's a list of stuff, and the foundation people know that stuff. I don't know it. Yeah. Tim Campbell, ACC Arrows. Is there a recommended point weight for each shaft size? I appreciate that this will come down to tuning, personal shooting style, etc. But is there a recommended point weight, such as a medium weight that you'd suggest, like you suggest, for arrows such as ACG and ACE? I thought the catalog had a chart. I think it used to, at least, you know, and it was pretty general recommendation. Yeah, like know, a range of 80 to 100. Yeah, the light spines, like 700 and down, were probably 70 to 90. The you know, and the stiffer spines are probably. 90 to 120 or so whatever. yeah there is there is a recommended point weight i don't know if it's currently in the catalog or not well i'd say you could just reference the same recommended point weights for ace equivalent spine values yep. would work yeah so for example you start getting into say a, a 360 acc um 340 spine yeah so you're talking about uh maybe 100 to 120 grains being optimal all right, Sterling is saying that he's interested in building his own arrows, but he finds all the various types of knocks confusing. Can you explain why you'd pick one type knock over another? Well, the problem with your question is it helps if you narrow down the use. Mm-hmm. But we can talk about this in general terms. Let's talk about target archery first. Let's start with compound target archery. There is um, several choices. There are several choices all of which have more or less equal merit depending on the application. You have the 3D Supernock, 
which is a good all-around knock, fairly long ears, works well with a D-loop, can work even with one of those... Um, like a torqueless loop? Torqueless loops. Can. Not, that doesn't mean it does, but it, it is capable of that. The knock itself is very strong, very tough. Uh, it'll hold up well under abusive conditions, heavy poundage bows, things of that nature. Um, so you might pick that knock over, let's say, a regular super knock for another reason, and that is the string fit. So you have two choices. You've got a tighter string fit with a super knock. You have a somewhat looser string fit with the 3D knock, the 3D super knock. You, for example, for ACE type shafts or ACGs, could choose to use a G knock that fits directly into the arrow shaft in the case of uh, ACEs, for example, and ACGs. Or you could choose to use a pin knock, a G pin. The G pin is optimized for compound, although it'll work just fine for recurve as well in many cases. Uh, and again, that comes down to a factor of, do you want to have a knock that has the extra protection that you get from a pin? Uh, and also the extra complication of installing the pin? Or just one that you can twist in the G-knock and, and call it good? You've also, of course, got the option of biter knocks, and those work similarly. One type of biter knock can go directly into the arrow, and one goes on a pin. And then um, from there... Um, it's simply a matter of finding one that fits your string correctly or adjusting your string to fit the knock correctly. Now for recurve, um, there are many more choices it seems to me uh, if we want to get into all the choices. For recurve, you're talking about things like biter in-out knocks, biter out knocks that fit over the back of the shaft, biter in knocks that fit inside the shaft, biter pin knocks, eastern pin knocks, that come in three varieties, small groove, large groove, and G. The small and large groove are recommended, the regular pin knocks are recommended for finger release. You have the option of being able to uh, go with the Easton PC knock that goes on the outside of the X10, for example. Lots and lots of choices, right? So it really comes down to what do you like and what are you trying to achieve? You want to go for the lightest possible knock then you're going to go for something that's direct fit with no pin. I can see why there may be some confusion, but you know when it comes down to it, each individual arrow shaft, each model really only has one or two options. True. Maybe three. True. So, yeah, it's it shouldn't be hard to narrow it down once yeah. you figure out what model you're using. And don't forget, you know, color options. Those are important too, believe it or not. The most important part probably. Well, okay. Uh, coffee caffeination, which is a great handle on. Yeah, this one is all you. This is a. This one's robust. Uh, okay, let's see here. Well, this is a tough one because it's Barabo. So you know, there's a lot of variables with Barabo, but we'll try our best. <laughs> um, this is a question about adding mass to a total arrow weight when normal points and pins aren't enough. So this person shoots Barabo recurve, holding 50 pounds on the fingers, 27 inch riser, long limb. 300 spine carbon arrow. This this is a beast. Cut at 31 inches plus a 45 grain insert plus a 125 grain screw in field point. So he's got a 500 grain total arrow at 33 and an eighth total arrow length. Arrow point is just outside the riser on full draw, so actual draw length is 31 and a half. 
And he says these arrows are doing pretty well for him at the moment. But he had to add the inserts and the field points to increase the arrow mass for the particular limbs that he's shooting. His normal 32.5-inch 325-spine X10s with 125 grain points were way too light, very noisy, so he needed a minimum 490-grain total mass arrow weight. So he wants to know, if he wants to go back to X10s, can he use some cut-off steel point weights in the rear of the shaft to increase the arrow mass and maintain the spine stiffness? 20 grains or even 30 grains to the rear of the arrow. What about doing the same to the point weight? Just cutting the front off a set of points and pushing the steel shaft in before he puts the whole 120 grain point in. What will this do to the arrow flight characteristic, assuming 120, 140 grain point weight? Too much point mass will weaken the arrow spine. Am I getting away with 300 spine carbons at the moment, uh, even with 170 grains on the front, but any less stiff arrow spine means I can't get the point weight I need for that 500 grain mass. So he wants to know about adding to the rear of the shaft. Let me, let me give you a little warning about the uh, addition of weight to the rear of the shaft. You will mess up the ability of that arrow to clear your arrow rest. You put too much weight in the back and you defeat the purpose of a barreled shaft like an X-10. Uh, it will not clear, potentially, and you've already got enough challenges with barebow. You don't want to make it worse by having a clearance problem. Uh, if I were you, I would suggest that you find some extra... I wouldn't even go cut off points. I would go to... I don't know if you're in the U.S., but if you are, go to McMaster Car Catalog, mcmaster.com, and go buy yourself some 50-grain dowel pins in a 125 OD and put those in the arrow, in the front, behind the point. And that will hopefully solve your problem. So there you go. That is a beastly setup. Yeah, that's a lot of info to process too. Especially on a podcast. So uh, <laughs> if folks, if we lost you with all that, you can go to our Facebook and you can read the question for yourself. And I think you've heard the answer. Trent Sheath. Uh, do you believe that carbon arrows have a service life? As in, do they lose consistency in spine between arrows that have been shot more compared to others. I'm going to say no, um, that carbon arrows don't lose spine from being shot. What they do lose from being shot is um, material. If you shoot them into stramet or into harsh target materials over time, you'll, you'll lose some weight from the front of the arrow mm -hmm. because it's basically sanding off a little bit of carbon every time you hit the target. I've never felt like I had an arrow that all of a sudden was a lot weaker no, and you know they don't. You don't shoot the spine out of an aluminum arrow either. By the way, um, <laughs> I've heard that term way too many times over the course of my career, and I can tell you that uh, if you're seeing a change in, in in apparent performance on an arrow, it's not because you know it's being bent like a paperclip, like some specious arguments I've heard. What you're what you're seeing is something else, like the knock is worn out, or that's no what I was going to say. Know, you can sure wear out the throat of a knock. Oh, yeah. And and most people don't bother to change that. No, so. and, it, you know, some people would be quite surprised to see how much that can affect things over the course of time. So, knocks you know have the, a service uh, life. Knocks do. You know the guy who was, oh, man, I can't remember his name. He's an actor. He made a brief appearance in the show Walker, Texas Ranger as a guy who apparently he was a chef in that show. And he asked a guy prior to getting a, a soup pot slammed over his head if the soup had enough garlic in it for him. And then he asked him if he learned how to hit at girls' scout camp. So 
if you've ever watched Walker, Texas Ranger. Which was Chuck Norris, right? No, no, it was another guy in the show. No, but but that's his show. Right? Yeah, it was okay. Chuck Norris's show, yes. Um, so that guy, he went on to uh, have diabetes, and he did the diabetes commercials that were check your blood sugar and check it often. And Check your knocks, check them often. Check your knocks, check them often. I knew you were going somewhere with this. And I like to say the same about rest blade, fletchings. You should have that conversation with uh, Mr. Galantine, the rest blade one. Oh, did he have an issue with Twice. Oh, yeah. At World Cups. Broken rest blade or something. Yeah, remember that time he had to borrow um, Martin Damsbo's bow? I thought that was for worse than a rest blade, but I don't remember. Well, and then there was another time when Mel uh, Nichols had to run all the way back to the hotel to grab his backup bow out of his hotel room for the finals <laughs> at Croatia at a World Cup. So, yeah, both of the times. It, he let the rest blade get to the rust, get enough rust on it that it actually failed. It just failed. snapped. It yeah. just snapped. So yeah. If Braden's listening to the show, uh, we, we love you, Braden. We're just kidding. <laughs> um, check it often. Yeah, well. And, you know, check your arrows. Make sure they're not cracked or, or, or dented or otherwise damaged from mm-hmm. other arrow impact. Uh, at every you know every shot you should check yeah. every every uh, every end up a tree archery can you explain shot execution and timing and what exactly is being accomplished during your shot with sight picture with timing of the shot sounds like a simple question and and this is really you know pretty much the key to shooting a compound or recurve competently is having everything line up when the shot breaks right i mean that's what it's all about so Let's understand something. Nobody's holding perfectly still. Nobody is holding perfectly still when that shot breaks. You got to let it float. Fighting it just makes it worse. I, yeah, I mean, I've I've said it before, but I think uh, right before you cut a shot loose with a with a hinge release like I use. I mean, when I click, I'm like eight thousandths away from firing, and in between the click and firing, I'm probably less than a thickness of a paper. I'm literally a, a hair away from that release firing. That's the, that's the amount it needs to rotate. And as humans, we're pretty good at determining, you know, what's going to fire a release and what's not. And there's something within our subconscious that can make one go off. Sure. And over a period of time, with any release, whether it's, you know, mechanical or finger tab, you develop the ability to complete the shot, to execute the, the release as the mind is seeing the sight picture that it needs to see on the target. It's absolutely true. The, the, the clicker shooter on a recurve is in control of the shot at a higher level. Uh, at a lower level, you're waiting for the click to happen, but at a higher level, you're actually making it happen. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, there's, and it's subconscious. There's no, you know, active thinking, all right, well, I need to pull the bow back another 30 seconds yeah, of an in inch fact, to you get actively, it past the clicker. You actively want to be thinking about something else. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, you, you should really be thinking about aiming, and the rest will happen. And yeah. if you're aiming really well for, Four or five seconds, and it's not firing, start over. Yeah, I'll buy that for a compound. For a recurve, I'm not sure you want to be thinking about aiming as much as you want to think about moving or pulling or having your elbow okay, yeah. move. Or We've talked about this before. You know, it's um, Yeah, your movements are a little different. Well, it's execution either way. And it's, it's honestly, it's commanding. It's, 
dominating the situation, not letting it dominate you. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important mindset to have at a higher level, at least. Uh, James uh, Barkheimer says that he loves a podcast. Last weekend, he drove to ASA in Paris and listened to the podcast for the whole eight hours. Oh, my God. So- James, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we, are, so- we are so, so sorry. <laughs> There's, uh, this reminds me of a great uh, Onion article where the uh, where Netflix called to check in on a customer because they had watched six straight seasons of Sons of Anarchy and they just wanted to make sure he was okay like I wish we could see that you know like uh, there's a warning pops up on our phone warning podcast listener has listened to nine straight episodes we have to call him is that a true story by the way about Netflix no, it was, okay. it was from The Onion. Because that's creepy. If, that's, if that were true, <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. be creepy. All right. Uh, I don't know what to say, James, except I'm glad you stayed awake. Uh, George Clark, how do you fix a low hold at long distance but not at, say, 10 yards? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, except change it up. Find, Probably, a, different, find I, a different focus. I bet it's a reticle issue. Yeah, that's the, what I'm getting the at. The covers the... Yeah target too now, much. George, I don't know if you're shooting a compound or a recurve, but change it. Change it to a ring. If Either way, change Smaller it to a ring. dot, bigger dot, something. Something. Change it, try and, it and try that. Sammy, our friend in uh, Finland, wants to know, everything else being equal, should X10s be stiffer than ACEs? And if so, how much? Well, they already are, Sammy, if you notice. Um, an X10, um, let's say a 410, is equivalent to an ACE 430. They dynamically shoot about the same. So when I designed the X10s, I already made them stiffer to compensate for the mass. Hmm. So hopefully that answers that question for you. If not, get back to us. Robert Holder, big cat, congratulations on the Arizona Cup podium. Even if you were sick and tossing your cookies, that was a comment, not a, not a question. Yep. So, all right. Lights Out Crew is asking, um, if an archer's draw length is 28 and a quarter, or just a skosh more than that, is it better to set the bow draw length at 28 and increase the draw length by increasing by adjusting string twists? Or would it be better to run the bow long and then shorten it by adjusting string twists? Referring to a compound bow and probably a question for Big Cat. Yep. So the dirty secret is most every bow is probably a quarter inch long or more. To hit some of the specs as much as anything else. Right, yeah. So ATA... Like a ton of companies out there, their IBO spec is actually based on the full tolerance of the spec. Right, because IBO's guidelines were to test the bow at 30 and three-quarter inch draw. Call it a 30 with like a three-quarter inch tolerance. And that three-quarter inches gets you like seven, eight feet per second in draw length. So you would see extremely long draw lengths when set at a, you know an IBO specification. Right. ATA specifications are no more than a quarter. So at Hoyt, the goal was – and now keep in mind, there's when you're designing a cam, especially if the cam is taken from one bow to the next, you can have some slight variance in what it will achieve in draw length. So say you take a you know, Prevail 40 and a Prevail 37 and – this cam is 30 inches on one and you go to the other and you go with the cam is supposed to be 30. Well, you know, the cam was designed as a cam around those two bows, but not specific to each axle to axle length. So you're going to get a little bit of variance in draw length. It's never, I don't know a single company who, if they say it's 28 inches, it's actually 28. They're all basically 28 and a quarter to 28 and a half. 
So if I'm trying to achieve 28 and a quarter, I'm just going to go with 28 inches and measure from there. And if it is short, I'm going to take some twists out of the string and get to where I need to be. Um, if I'm looking for 28 inches on the money, you know, you could go about that two ways. You could add twist to your 28 inch cam and, and get it back down to a true 28 inches, or you could go 27 and a half and lengthen it, but that then you're changing the draw force curve and let off and all sorts of different things. So if you got someone who is knowledgeable about that stuff, you know, you can really tweak the feel of a bow to what you like. But that's the long and short of it. Good stuff. Thank you, Steve. Mathis Strating, and forgive me if I got that wrong. Uh, what, why is the correct arrow length an inch minimum past the most forward point of the arrow rest? Any disadvantages to shooting a shorter arrow? There's two answers to this. Uh, one of them was addressed by uh, Trent Sheath, who uh, said one simple word, safety. Trent's right. Safety is important. You don't want to accidentally overdraw and, and uh, have that arrow potentially fall off the rest and uh, hurt you. But the, uh, the other answer is more complicated, unnecessarily complicated, and it has to do with how arrows bend when they leave the, uh, when they leave the bow. And I'm not going to get into it right now except to say that you'll find it's more forgiving to have a little more arrow in front of the rest. Someone else went and figured this out a long time ago. And yeah. Just go with it. And you don't want me getting into the whole discussion of nodes and yeah. everything else. We just don't need to go there. We talked about that in one of the podcasts, so... Uh, yeah. There's no need to overcomplicate this stuff. Just run it a little long, you'll be fine. <laughs> Francis Xavier, I'd love to hear tips and strategies for shooting in the wind. Tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll start and you, you follow up here. Uh, first one is use your ears. Wind has a rhythm to it. If you, um, if you pay attention, you can tell when you're get, the wind is going to ebb and flow, and you can adjust your shooting to what the wind is doing. Yeah, I mean, you can time it in a way you know sometimes if we've had a good consistent wind it's been doing the same thing over and over and you feel that big gust and give it a three or four count then draw your bow you might catch the the downside of the the wave as it is the um, the other thing i do if it's if it's very windy um one i try to pull harder on the bow and that helps two i'll grip the bow a little tighter so that get helps. aggressive on the shot yep you, you grab the little little bow hand, even just straight up death grip it next time you're shooting in a heavy wind and watch how it changes your ability to aim. So, I mean, I'm not advocating you death grip the bow, but just do that as an experiment. And then next time you're truly shooting in the wind, you know, do your regular relaxed grip and then get just a little tighter on it and you'll see it'll it'll help you a little bit in that wind. The other consideration is be in command of the shot. Don't get weak when the wind blows. Get strong. Get aggressive. Mm -hmm. An aggressively shot shot will be more effective than one that's half-hearted. Um, I'm serious. I mean, I know that sounds kind of, you know, a little weird, but it's true. There's no question about it. Getting more aggressive and, and getting on the shot and being in command of the situation, even when the wind's blowing you around, can get you far more points yeah, and from a strategic standpoint sometimes when it's extremely windy you have to shift your your way of thinking from you know at least at least uh at least me personally i try to change from thinking all right i gotta shoot the 10 i gotta hold the middle blah 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 and you're, you, you stop trying to make these perfect shots and now you go try to defend the gold right 
because if I can put six in the gold on an extremely windy day, a couple of them are probably going to catch, maybe even three or four, maybe five. You don't know. So you get some tens out of it, and you don't make any big mistakes. The other thing people don't realize is the wind is kind of an equalizer. Everybody's yeah. got to deal with it. People think people make the mistake of thinking that the top shooters have this ability to shoot in the wind. And they, they think, oh, man, a guy like Brady, he can – when it's windy, no one's going to touch him. No, that's not the case. When it's windy, people have a chance. When it's dead calm, that's what separates the men from the boys. So Yeah, I think I just said that, though. Yeah, I kind put it in different terms. Better terms, presumably. Depends on the listener. Right. Either way. Um, and then, you know, the other thing to consider is all the clues around you. Uh, look for flags. Look for trees. You know, I, I mentioned listening. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can tell you what the wind is doing. But most important is to recognize um, that the wind is not always doing what you think it is. Frequently, you'll see, you'll feel the wind coming from one direction when you're standing on the line. Mm -hmm. It may be going in the other direction by the time you get down to the target. Best thing to do in that kind of situation is aim dead on and shoot it because it'll equalize. Yeah. And see it all the time. Yeah. In arenas, especially. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a, yeah, there's a, a lot of tricks and things to be learned about shooting in the wind and things you'll forget and remember the next time it's windy and, um, you know, it's uh, shooting in the wind, like George said, the great equalizer. And so. the final comment is from Brian Anderson, at least Leroy Jenkins had chicken. That's got to be some family inside joke. Uh, yeah, if you if you Google Leroy Jenkins, you'll you'll know. It's, it's an old... This video was viral back before the term viral video was created, but it's a, uh, it's a guy playing world of Warcraft and these guys are way too into it. And you know, it's a big group of guys online. And one of them, one of them comes back from getting KFC and he's been gone the whole time while this other one's given the strategy and pep talk and he comes back and decides it's time to play and he doesn't wait for the group and he, he blows the whole thing and, Everyone gets mad at him, and he says, well, at least I had chicken. <laughs> we have a bunch of uh, good questions on the, um, on the mail dot, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the podcast email, the uh, podcast at eastontp.com. That's the one. But we're just going to go with one for now because I'm going to wrap up the show in the next couple minutes. And um, this one is, is more opinion than anything else, I think. Um. I heard the big, this is from Patrick LaPointe. I heard the big cat asked the other day on Greg Poole's podcast, what is the problem with archery? Or what is it that <laughs> archery needs to put it in the mainstream? Yeah. Um, he says, when you say archery, people in the United States think bow hunting at best or at worst, they associate it with those crappy movies with the girl with the bow. I didn't say that. Please, for the love of God, stop bringing that up. It was five minutes ago, which is two minutes longer than the average youth took any interest in archery based on those movies. I didn't say that either. Competitive archery to most of us in the United States is three and five spot indoor and 3D outdoor. There's recurve field archery, which is probably the smallest and least known form of archery in the U.S., except when it shows up on TV during the Olympics. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure that that's a correct uh, statement, but okay. He's saying he means recurve target archery here. Right. He said recurve field. Compound field archers are archers that cling to the hope they will someday be in the Olympics. Poor, sad, delusional 
B words. To the average American, the field of competitive archery must look like the land that bowlers went to when the bowling alleys closed. A bunch of fat, middle-aged dudes, myself included, wearing funny-looking shirts, playing with something. Does this guy sound bitter to you or what? I want to read this whole thing. Yeah, okay. While you're reading that, let me uh, suggest that if you have questions for us, you can send them to the Easton Target Archery Facebook page. And we'll try to give you 24 hours notice when we're going to do a podcast so you can get your questions up on that. And you can email us directly at podcast at eastontp.com. And Steve has Instagram and Facebook and what else? Oh, Twitter. Yeah, my Twitter's only personal thoughts now. Oh, is that right? It's not Deep thoughts related. with yep. Steve Anderson. Steve Anderson yep. 88. You got it. And um, I can be found on Twitter at gtechmachov. Uh on Twitter, but again, not not a whole lot of archery stuff on that. Not too much. No. You got any thoughts on this uh, comment here? I think I, Patrick Big Pat Lapointe. I don't even know if I'll bother reading through all of this. All right. I well, don't there's know a what lot. He's saying. Well, I think I think he's. I don't know if he's criticizing me or just making a comment. Why do you think he's criticizing you? I, said? I think what he's saying is. That um, he's saying Levi Morgan is the man and NASCAR rules. That might be true. Levi Morgan is the man. NASCAR rules. And NASCAR is pretty popular in the United States. Yeah. Formula One outside, though. That's the point, by the way, Patrick. You may feel like Olympic recurve is a niche, and that might be true here in the United States. Right. But it's a whole lot bigger outside. Yeah. There's a, you know what's great? There's archery for everybody. All sorts of it. There's some kind of archery for everybody. Whether you're an angsty teenage girl who wants to imitate Katniss Everdeen, or you're somebody who wants to shoot Vegas for $50,000, or anywhere in between. I saw a dude in Telford when we were there for the indoor event. Was that 2014? Guy was wearing gun commando boots and some type of a costume that I, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was supposed to be like, like modern Robin Hood or if it was postmodern Robin Hood. I don't know. Gun commando boots and a back quiver. He had a quiver on his back shooting like a Mongolian recurve bow, pulling arrows out and just. Is this a Lars Anderson guy? Range. No. Oh. This was some dude. He was legit. He was serious. As opposed to Lars Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. So. There is, there is archery for everyone. And the guy entered the Olympic recurve class at Telford with that setup. All right. Well, there you go. It takes all kinds. And that's the great thing about our sport. It does have all kinds. So, until the next time, I'm George Techmanchup with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. End of show. End of show.